Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Luke chapter 24. Made it to the final chapter of Luke. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word by your spirit. That we would be equipped for every good work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we return to the events that immediately follow the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the very core, at the very core, or the very core of the Christian faith is Jesus' bodily resurrection. So central a doctrine is the resurrection that if, if you deny it, you're a heretic and you remain in your sins. That's how central this is. There is no fudging on this one. The Holy Spirit tells us very simply, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing with the mouth accompanied with belief in the heart about that central doctrine that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. And elsewhere, the Holy Spirit, again, teaches us that the resurrection is central 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, in, in the church in Corinth, there was a problem surrounding this doctrine. Some had rejected it. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The first 12 verses of the last chapter of Luke record for us how the disciples of Jesus came to understand his resurrection from the dead. You have to remember that Jesus Jesus had been teaching them all along, right? Many times we read in the Gospels, all along that he would die and in three days rise again. But they didn't get it. They didn't fully understand what he was saying to them when he said it. Remember Luke 18, just a few chapters back. Luke 18, 31. Then he took the 12 aside. So he singles out the apostles. He takes them aside and he has teaching for them. And he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. And you think, okay, they've got the doctrine of the resurrection down. Right? At that point, it was locked in. Well, the next verse says, But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. I mean, three times in that one short verse, it says, no, 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 they didn't get it. I mean, that's quite an astonishing thing that they didn't understand what is central to the history of all of God's redemption and of mankind. What do we make of that? There's a There's a very real sense that these disciples who show up to the grave of Jesus are really just taking things in as they happen. It's as if they're not even anticipating what Jesus said will happen. They're just taking things in. Caring for his body. Remember that these women bring spices. They they have an expectation. But as those things happen in this section, right, they, they remember what Jesus has said and they believe. Subsequent to these events, we see the apostles, right, going about the whole world. And what's the main message that they're preaching as they go out into all the world? It's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, 
in that first sermon that we have recorded in Acts, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. They're witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so one last introductory point here. The death, um, the death of Jesus Christ is necessary. His death is necessary. And important, but but Christ's death without his resurrection is what? It's disastrous. It's incomplete. It's an acknowledgement that death, it would have been simply an acknowledgement that death had mastery over Jesus if the resurrection had not occurred. Here's what Calvin says about that. He says, seeing that in the cross, death, and burial, the cross, the death, and the burial of Jesus. Nothing but weakness appears. He says, seeing that nothing but weakness appears, faith must go beyond all these in order that it may be provided with full strength. Hence, although in his death we have an effectual completion of salvation, because by it we are reconciled to God, satisfaction is given to his justice, the curse is removed, the penalty is paid, still it's not by his death but by his resurrection that we are said to be begotten again to a living hope. 1 Peter 1, 3. Because as he, by raising, rising again, became victorious over death, so the victory of our faith consists only in his resurrection. The nature of it is better expressed, expressed in the words of Paul, who, Christ, was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. As if he had said by his death sin was taken away. By his resurrection righteousness was renewed and restored. For how could he by, by dying have freed us from death. If he had yielded to its power. How could he have obtained the victory for us. If he had fallen in the contest. Our salvation may thus be divided between the death and the resurrection of Christ. By the former, sin was abolished and death annihilated. By the latter, righteousness was restored and life revived. And do you see that the resurrection is central? The centrality of the resurrection is reflected in the very fact that we meet together on the day of the week when the resurrection took place, Sunday, right? It's central. Luke mentions that right from the start, but on the first day of the week at early dawn. Don't just blaze by that as information about what's happening. On the first day of the week, he says, at early dawn. Now these women who had been present at Jesus' crucifixion, after resting on that Sabbath day, which is... A glorious rest of all the days where they they could have felt like they could break the Sabbath. It would have been that one, and yet they rest. They go to the tomb in order to care for Jesus' body. They bring spices, yet when they arrive, things are not as they expected. The stone is rolled away from the tomb, and most significantly, the body of Jesus is not there. They expect to find a lifeless body, but instead, there's only linen wrappings. There's no body there. 
Um, and, and, and clearly, when, when things don't meet our expectations, we're perplexed. We, we're left scratching our heads, and that's what happens to those who went there to find Jesus' body. While they were perplexed about this, the text says, they're perplexed. I would imagine they're not only perplexed, though, they're anxious. Trying to figure out what's going on here. Not yet putting the equation together. And then the unexpected goes up another level. Two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Of course, these are not men, but they are angels who appear as men. Uh, John 20 says of these two beings that they were angels. Uh, We so easily forget, right, about the work and the ministry of the angels. Uh, For Jesus, think about the ministry of the angels. For Jesus, the ministry of the angels was great comfort to him. They come to Jesus when Jesus is suffering as if commanded by the Father to give the Son some sort of relief in his work. It's a, it's a, beautiful, a beautiful picture of the grace of God. When the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan was complete, who ministered to Jesus? An angel, right? Mark 1.13 says, And Jesus was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And then remember this, you may not remember this instance. When Jesus is agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately after Jesus asks for his father to remove the cup from him, an angel comes and ministers to Jesus. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, and then it says this, strengthening him. That angel comes and gives strength to Jesus. And not only, not only did they minister to Jesus, but they, they did much else. They announced Jesus' birth. So they're, they're heralds, they're around Jesus announcing what's going to happen to the world through this, this God-man Jesus. And then here, God employs them to announce the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the angels speak to the women. And the significance of these words is incredible. I mean, you think about all the humiliating work that the Son of God has done after being born of a woman. After all the suffering of the Son of God, after the mocking of the Son of God by mere men, after 30 years of the eternal, glorious Son of God living in obscurity, after three years of suffering with the unbelief of the people that he came to save, and the unbelief of the priests and the rulers of the temple, And then after dying, all that humiliation of the Son of God, and now we have these words of victory, triumph, power. Everything 
everything, right? And not just everything, I mean everything points to this moment. Um, you know, if we left, if we left this scene, and I'm, this shouldn't be done. If we left this scene to the cinematographers of today, the importance of these words would be emphasized with like it'd be all increasing motion, increasing motion, and, and noise and noise, and then it'd stop, and nothing would move, and the angel would speak them, and you'd you'd have to be like deaf, dumb, and blind, not to see that they're trying to emphasize these words, right? Um, but this is, you know, this is not make-believe. This is real life, and, and the angels said these words to, the, to these uh, women, and, and it is the announcement, it is the announcement that everything has changed. Everything has changed. Jesus Christ has now claimed the victory you know, not simply is this a, a a battle won, right? Not simply is this like a battle that involved uh, submarines and stealth bombers. This is victory over death itself. Everything has changed. And the angel says to these women who want to minister to the body of Jesus, they say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? (laughs) Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. He's not here. Glory. There are certain things that the Holy Spirit has recorded in Scripture that stand out. And these two sentences may be unmatched in their impact. What can one say about, I mean, what can I say about this? What can one say about these things as a preacher that drive them home? I simply want to read these sentences over and over again until it, it sinks into us. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. I mean, if we don't get a a sense of their magnitude, of the gravity, of the glory of these words, I'm not sure I I can give you anything. If these words don't resonate and boom through your soul, then I fear you remain like the apostles before this point. The meaning of this statement is hidden from you. But not simply the meaning of the statement is hidden, but the very glory of the one who died and rose again is hidden from you. You know, I, I so often see people who are, are blinded by the minutiae, the little details of their study of Scripture, that, that they leave off the awe and amazement that they should have in Jesus Christ. That, that childlike faith that's commended to us in Scripture. And the joy of their salvation is, is destroyed. I'm not telling you not to study. But I am telling you that, the, that excessive devotion to books is wearying to the soul. You would be better off putting down the book 
and spending this afternoon dancing around your living room for joy from this sentence. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Dancing in faith in response to that. He's not here. I mean, it's, it's stupendous glory. And so I pray that we, we spend time simply enjoying, settling on these words, rejoicing in what they, what they mean for us. Right, that, that God may give us joy in our salvation. Ryle, J.C. Ryle writes, Above all, the resurrection of Christ ought to fill our hearts with a joyful sense of the fullness of gospel salvation. Who is he that shall condemn us? Our great surety has not only died for us, but risen again. He has gone to prison for us and come forth triumphantly, After atoning for our sins, the payment he made for us has been accepted. The work of satisfaction has been perfectly accomplished. No wonder that St. Peter exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have hope in something else. Perhaps you have hope in something other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why you labor at labor so hard at hoping. You labor for that which will not long or satisfy. You hope in a bit more money. You hope in a relationship. You hope in better insurance, not assurance. You hope in this or that thing or this or that thought or this or that. um, Wonder, but, but if that's true... Your hope is not as lively and will never be as lively as it should be if it is set upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If your hope is firmly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your hope will remain lively. It will not ebb and flow according to the ups and downs of this broken world. It will be lively. It will be stable. It will be firm and solid. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There is nothing else worth knowing. There is nothing else worth knowing. There is nothing else that means anything. All wisdom is like a drop in the bucket to knowing, receiving, and resting in the fact of Jesus' resurrection. It is the only thing worth knowing. It is the only thing that will save your soul. The Son of God died and rose from the dead. Now the angels not only announce Jesus' resurrection, but they tell the women that they should have seen this coming. 
Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they're like, oh yeah, he did say that, didn't he? Now, of course, we know that that spiritual truths must be, re- must be revealed, right? They're revealed truths. Spiritual truths are revealed truths. They must be revealed to those who will come to understand them. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things have been, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Right? That truth must be revealed. That, that even obviously holds true for these, these women and the apostles who heard what was going to come to pass from the very mouth of Jesus. They had the best preacher, the best Bible study leader in the history of the world. And they did not accept those things until it was revealed to them. Even still, even still, understanding and ultimately faith had to be given as a gift. Now, it appears that gift has been given in response to the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What do they do? They report. They report. They speak. They go to, to announce. They run back to those who who would like to know of such glory. The eleven and the rest, it says in verse 9, and then we find out who it is that went back. Mary Magdalene, the one who had been forgiven much. Joanna, Mary the mother of James. This is not uh, the brother of Jesus, but James the less. And other women. It's all women who go back to the apostles. Calvin refers to these women as the apostle to the apostles. The apostles to the apostles. They're the sent ones. They've been sent and given this message. They've seen the evidence. They go back to report to the apostles. And so they are given the immense privilege of announcing Christ's resurrection to Jesus' main men, the apostles. Now, what kind of reception did they receive with this paradigm-changing, world-altering news? What kind of reception do they receive? Verse 11, but these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Many of the commentators I was reading remarked that this makes the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus all the more sure. That they at first think it's nonsense, but then all they preach afterwards is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Proves the truth of the situation. Right? They, they are given the immense... I mean, they, they go... It appears they did not expect Jesus to rise at all, but then they go about the world proclaiming it. It's worth pointing out that that, um, we remember this passage from another gospel, John's gospel, and in that passage, it's not just Peter 
who runs to the tomb, but it's Peter and John. Why Luke only reports Peter, I don't know, but nonetheless, what he writes remains true. Indeed, Peter did go to the tomb and do the things that he did. He simply leaves John out of the picture. Now, though many would respond to the words of the women, calling them nonsense, Peter decides to respond, checking things out for his own. He runs to the tomb, he looks in, sees the linen lying there, which in itself is a confirmation of the resurrection, right? A stolen body. They probably would have taken the linen with. But it is, he's been, it lies there. But Peter sees the linen lying there and goes to his home, marveling at what had happened. The report of these events in John 20 also states that after they looked in the tomb, they went to their own homes. Seems they go home after this. I mean, it's quite peculiar. It's, It's strangely ordinary, isn't it? The veil is being lifted from their eyes. They're marveling and mulling over and meditating and all that is going on and they they go home. Perhaps even still things have not sunk in and the apostles are trying to figure things out still in their own wisdom, but not by revelation. And it was not until Jesus, remember, was in their midst and breathed on them that they truly understood Looking ahead, that's just what we find. Luke 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, I mean, look at this. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus does what the angels did. The angels said, don't you remember that Jesus said this? Now Jesus is going to say, don't you remember what I... These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. The Holy Spirit had to come upon them. This had to be revealed knowledge to them as it is to any man. So what, what in the end can I say about these things? I, I think what is important for us to remember is that Christianity is not merely a religion of facts. The Apostle Peter got a lot right about Jesus, didn't he? He understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He confessed that he was the Son of God. He recognized and was troubled with his own sinfulness when he was in the presence of Jesus. He committed everything to Jesus and left everything else behind and followed Jesus. And yet, seeing miracles, hearing Jesus preach, learning about him did not lead to what is necessary to faith, believing that he rose from the dead until the Spirit came upon him. So many false Conversions are made when someone comes to Jesus for less than his resurrection. Right? For less than what Jesus truly is. So many people come to Jesus because they like some element of Jesus or they like some teaching of Scripture. 
They've lived through an awful existence. So when Jesus says, I am gentle, find rest in me, they like what they hear. They're lonely. You know, someone's lonely, and when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, they, they go, um, they commit. Or so they think. But the Christian faith is not one of fact alone. It is supernatural. A man must be born again by the Spirit. His mind must be illumined by the Spirit. He must be made alive. Then and only then will the miracle of a dead man rising make sense and be accepted and become the core of his existence. So many people follow Jesus because they haven't because they haven't even thought of the resurrection. So many people have been told so many people have been told that it's perfectly reasonable to follow Jesus and deny the miracle of his resurrection. So many Reformed and and Presbyterian professors of faith have have an intellectual faith that they believe is sufficient for salvation, and they don't tolerate the unreasonableness of the resurrection. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But for those who have the Spirit, for those who have the Spirit, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. Everything. It's, it's every bit of your hope if you are in Christ. It's the very centerpiece of your life. It's the one thing upon which everything else hangs. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's what we announce as Christians to the world. God, the Son, was born of a woman, died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and will come again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this report of the events surrounding the burial, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we don't just thank you for the report. We thank you for the reality of the fact that your son rose from the dead. And that is our hope. We hope to follow in in him. He being the firstborn, and those who are united to him by faith following. Father, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. I pray that we would all have not just hope, but a lively hope fixed upon the resurrection of the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.